Welcome to the ENA Podcast. This is the ENA Podcast, and this is Dan Campana, the Senior Manager for PR and Communications with the Emergency Nurses Association, welcoming you to our latest episode which is a first time type episode for us here on the podcast in our two years of bringing these to our listeners, both within ENA membership and out in the general uh, healthcare world. Uh, today, we're gonna talk about the Journal of Emergency Nursing and talk with a couple authors from a paper appearing in the November issue of the journal. And what we're gonna do today is talk a little bit about the, obviously the, the paper itself and the topic uh, that is in the upcoming issue or the November issue, but also learn a little bit about uh, a couple of the authors and really how the ideas come forth for the things that you see in Gen every, uh, every issue, uh, whether it's uh, strict you know, qualitative, quantitative analysis and research, or whether it's just adopting and uh, adapting and looking at the things that are happening in, in particular EDs and how that information can be shared out to the greater audience and the readership of the journal. So with that, I wanna welcome and introduce Suzanne Watson, a nurse manager uh, for emergency services at Nebraska Medicine in Omaha, Nebraska, and Amy Mead, who is an ED nurse manager at Bellevue Medical Center in Nebraska as well. So Suzanne and Amy, welcome to the ENA podcast. Thank you for having us. So, as I mentioned, you know, this is a first time we're venturing into really helping broaden the idea of what Jen is about and uh, talking about some of the topics and the great, um, you know, the great emergency nursing information that uh, is included in Jen, but also learning a little bit about the backgrounds of the people who are responsible for what appears in there, the authors, um, what is, you know, their motivation to get this information out there. So, uh, Suzanne, let me start with you a little bit and just talk a little bit about, um, you know, your background, but also, um, you know, sort of your connection to the journal and, and why the journal is something that uh, you feel has been important in your career. Um, you bet. Um, I have been a nurse since May of 1980. I've been an emergency nurse since um, January of 1992, and I've been a nurse manager since 2001. And I have been an ENA member for, I believe, 20 plus years. And the reason I really like um, the Gen is that it gives me an opportunity to read articles and learn new things that other emergency nurses or um, emergency departments are doing around the country because we all want to just continue to learn from each other and continue to give our patients the best care that we possibly can. Amy, uh, same sort of question, your background and, and also maybe a little bit about you know, your connection to Gen and whether Jen was ever something that in your mind you thought, hey, I'm gonna be an author who's published in that someday. I mean, did that ever cross your mind as you as your career has developed? Dan, thanks, that's a great question. So um, I like to say that I was born and raised in the emergency department. I started working in the ED about 15 years ago and really truly have kind of traversed all of the different roles in the emergency department. So 15 years ago, I started as an emergency services tech and um, quickly found my love and my passion for the work that we do and the patients that we serve in the emergency department. And I um, went to nursing school, became a nurse about 11 years ago, and you know have, have really enjoyed all of my time and all of the things I have learned through the emergency department and ventured into um, leadership uh, as, as both an assistant manager and then now most recently as a manager for the last three years. 
Um, Dan, as um, a longtime member of the Emergency Nurses Association, you know, I received the journals every month and I would read them and I loved all of the variety of things that, you know, the problems that people are trying to solve for and sharing that wealth of knowledge with the community so that we can all um, kind of be marching forth together in terms of improving our best practices for the patients that we serve. Um, but to your, to your question earlier about whether or not I ever thought that I would be an author, um, no, that, that thought never crossed my mind. Um, and as we started working together on solving some of the issues that we had and making sure that we were preparing our teams well, um, this particular topic came up. And as we talked about our learnings and our successes with um, this particular topic, we thought, gosh, you know, we should be sharing this with others. This should be something that others are learning from because it has been so successful for us. And it certainly is something that we want people to feel prepared about and to have their teams prepared for. So that is really the, the impetus that led us to work together as a group to share and to, and to draft this um, article. So before we go too much further, let's mention the title of the article. It's Can You Catch It? Lessons Learned in Modification of ED Triage Symptom and Travel Screening Strategy. So there's a lot kind of packed into that title there. And from talking with you a little bit beforehand, um, this is something that um, the paper was born out of things that were actually occurring and what you were doing and, and things that were starting to happen within uh, the ED that, that the two of you worked in. And that eventually led itself to becoming this paper and, and being published. Before we get into the, the, the bulk of, of talking about the study or the, the information itself, um, let's just talk a little bit about, you know, the, you know, at what point does it click in, in your collective minds with, with the authors and within your, the, the, the two of you? Um, Suzanne, at what point does it sort of click in that says, hey, this is something that we do need to share and we need to start to build out the process so that we can uh, submit this paper for the call and eventually find its way to where it is now in the November issue. But how does that really get started, you know, in, in, you know, within your group? And when did you realize this is really important? We got to get this out there. Gosh, I'm trying to think it was probably um, mid to maybe early 2019, mid 2000, it's hard to remember just because time has kind of been crazy the last few years. But I think it was once we readapted the travel screening and we were looking at what we were doing and we were looking at um, some of the changes that we had seen like in behavior of our staff and the decrease in number of potential infection control violations I was looking into that we were like, okay, we, we are doing a good job and we need to maybe share this with other people because we have seen a decrease in the number of potential exposures that we've seen in our own staff and really doing some good things out front as far as making sure everybody is masked and things like that. So of course the nexus of this is several years back. Um, you mentioned 2014 is really sort of the nexus of you know, this program and looking at these things to the level that you, you talked about. So um, when you talk about that's the starting point for all this and how you get to the point where you're really starting to put it together to create uh, a, a, this article. Um, Amy, why don't you give me a little bit of background on really what got this started in 2014 and what you were hoping to accomplish just for you know, some of the things Suzanne mentioned, which is, uh, the safety of patients, the safety of staff, and how that morphed into to where we're at now, because the topic and the information here certainly has relevance uh, in 2020 with everything going on COVID-19 related, but all of this was born out of something long before COVID 
So just talk about a little bit of how this starts in 2014. And then uh, if you'd like to, you can kind of tie this into really where we're at today. Sure, Dan, that's a great question. So you think back to 2014, and that was when um, some interesting things were going on in the healthcare community. And that was when we really started to see the first couple of cases of Ebola virus disease in the United States present to emergency departments. And so while we were all aware of Ebola virus long before that and the implications of things that were happening um, in Africa, we just really were a little bit blind to the fact that this could be happening or we could see patients with these risk factors in the United States. And so um, what really prompted this need, uh, this need for a travel screening strategy, you know, using our symptomology and epidemiological risk factors was once we saw a couple cases pop up in other emergency departments in the United States, we realized that we were vulnerable because you're never gonna find what you're not looking for. And so we wanted to arm and prepare our teams to be able to use a standard tool so that something that you know is not as common, that it would always put it in the forefront of their mind so that they would have something reliable so that they would be able to identify these patients. Because kind of what we found at that time in 2014 was some of these patients, they would come to the ED, the teams weren't suspecting it, they were treated, they were cared for, some of them were discharged later to come back and then be diagnosed. Um, and when you have some of these special pathogens in these highly um, infectious diseases, um, you really have to make sure that you're identifying them early so that to Suzanne's point, you are protecting your staff, you're protecting other patients and, and you're isolating appropriately. Uh, Suzanne, one of the things you mentioned about this is that it, there's been an adaptation throughout since 2014. And then you get into the time frame in which the, um, uh, the paper talks about, which is in that last uh, year, year and a half, two year kind of time frame. So put that a little bit into the context of, you know, what, what did you see change? You know, when you start in 2014, you continue to adapt and then you start to get into the time frame in which the, the, the paper discusses, uh, there were results that really showed that something was working, right? Exactly. In 2014, we actually started the process on paper. Um, and because we wanted to kind of work out our process and then we had it built into our uh, electronic medical record, which then was able to give us um, what, depending on how questions were answered, were, be, be able, were able to give us best um, practice advisories on how to react to that, which really helped our nurses, especially initially, because it was something new. And the best practice advisories have been very, very helpful. But in the beginning, we were um, screening at a very basic level about travel and then, you know, symptoms and travel. Then we expanded it once um, kind of Ebola went away and we had some MERS then come into the United States and some concerns around that. So then we were able to adapt the screening questions kind of based on like time frame um, and symptomatology. And so over time, what we have done is um, with all the emerging pathogens that you know we are seeing and the different um, viruses that are occurring, we've tried to adapt based on what's going on in the United States as well as internationally, because as everybody knows, we're a country who travels. I mean, yes, country, um, travel is kind of limited right now, but um, nine months ago, it was not. And so what we have tried to do is really adapt it to what's relevant. 
and what also will potentially catch other disease states because things like influenza, measles, things that people see ongoing that you wanna make sure that you're catching those as well and that you're not just looking for those one or two things that um, occur periodically. And obviously when you talk about travel specific, I mean, that was certainly one of the first things that in, is part of if travel screening and, and triage were two of the, the most uh, talked about things very early on with COVID-19. So, um, you know, to get into to some of the detail and some things that, you know, might be a particular interest to people listening, but also those who want to go in, in, and read the article itself uh, in the November issue is um, really about triage. Uh, so, Amy, one of the things that kind of jumped out was having a nurse greeter to help with that screening. And I'm sure that even from uh, January, February to today, how that has worked has changed for a variety of reasons. But that was one of the things that was talked about to help screen those patients coming through. Um, so when we're talking about today and, and all the things that can influence the ability to do that, whether it be staffing levels or just clearly the, the nature of COVID and, and how EDs have been traversed because of COVID, um, talk a little bit about how you know, that was something that it was born out of, of what your process was, but how it's also been adapted given the COVID landscape. Yeah, Dan, we found that having that consistent triage greeter nurse role is really so very important in, um, in just making sure that processes are followed consistently. So anytime you have some variability in processes, that's where you have risk and you have weakness. And so we have really been committed to that process from the start. And you know, to Suzanne's point, by having that consistent person asking the questions and identifying a patient who needs to be isolated right away, whether it be giving that patient a mask um, right upon initial presentation um, or, and or asking those questions, identifying the risk and taking the patient to a room where they can be isolated. We have found that we have cut down the risk for our staff so significantly um, that it has been successful. And in really truly right now, you have to be, you have to be cognizant and aware of that because staffing um, is so very important. You know, we are seeing increased demands on our teams and increased demands, you know, by exponential numbers of patients coming to be seen in the emergency departments. And so we really need to make sure that we are protecting and keeping our staff safe um, so that they can continue to provide care and that they feel confident coming to work. So to kind of piggyback on that a little bit, Suzanne, um, maybe give us a little bit of background on, you know, kind of paint the picture of what the, you know, the ED that, you know, you've been operating with, you know, within this, this process and, and using as part of the study, you know, in terms of how many beds, um, you know, things like negative pressure rooms and, you know, do you have rooms with outdoors that are just curtains and, and how does all that sort of play into um, the importance of the screening process and then knowing where to put people, you know, pre-COVID and then obviously during COVID. Right. Um, well, we were a 40 bed emergency department and we have all private rooms except for four. And that's our trauma bay. Um, and we have four negative airflow rooms, but we on any given day will have more patients that are either positive COVID or rule out COVID than those four negative airflow rooms. When it initially started, with COVID, obviously when we were screening people, those were the rooms we were putting patients into. And we would move patients and then move them into those rooms. The way things are today, um, people are not able to do that. I don't, I don't believe probably anywhere around the country, emergency departments are not built to have all negative airflow rooms. 
And um, that may be something we all do differently in the future. I don't know. But right now, that's not something we can do. Um, one of the things that we have done is we have the benefit of having individuals that can come do air quality and sampling for us to see if how our infection control practices are, because that's one of the things that are very, very important with any type of emerging pathogen is to make sure that you have great infection control practice practices. And so while we haven't been, had the luxury of being able to have all positive COVID people in negative airflow rooms, our um, air sampling and our um, surface sampling has come out exceptional to this point. And they're actually gonna come do some more um, in the next couple weeks, just because we are seeing more and more positive patients. But I think if there's anything I would maybe share with people, is to really stress with your staff the importance of, like Amy said, consistency of screening, consistency of utilization of great infection control practices that everybody has to wear their masks appropriately, wear N95s when indicated, and um, clean. Wash your hands, wash your hands, and clean every surface, and just make sure that you're being consistent. So Amy, I want to ask you for some takeaways as well in a second, but let me go back to sort of the process, you know, the um, putting together uh, the information and building out something that turns into, you know, a, a published article like this. Given COVID um, and when it arrived in your process to, to build this paper, um, how did that, you know, how did you find a way to, to work COVID into this? Because it, it probably would have been difficult to put out a paper about infection control in 2020, but not have anything COVID related in it. So um, was there some, was, was there a point in time where you're like, hey, here's our opportunity to really bring some 2020 information into this paper? Yeah, Dan, that's, that's the interesting part of all of this is this conversation, like Suzanne um, said, it started long before COVID and we started drafting this article um, long before COVID was even on our radar. So we wanted to really share what we had learned from, you know, our starting point, which was trying to identify patients at risk for Ebola. And then that quickly, like fast forward a couple of years later, we were incorporating things like MERS. And then a couple of years after that, or maybe a year after that, we started to say, hey, look, we can utilize the same process to identify more common things, like whether it be measles or influenza or other kind of um, illnesses that we see a little bit more frequently in isolating those. And so we started to draft this article and our first submission was really focused on all of that. Well, as we were um, revising our first edition, that's when everything started with COVID. Um, and internally as a hospital system, we were revamping our EMR, we were retooling the questions, retooling everything so that it would include COVID-19 too, which was you know just so novel at the time. And we said, hey, this is pertinent more than ever. What we are talking about, what we're identifying in our article is so very pertinent right now. And we wanna share with people how they can use this same process to help prepare for you know, all of these pathogens, not just MERS, not just Ebola. Um, and so it really actually was very timely, you know, um, not intentionally so, but ended up being very timely. So in terms of takeaways, obviously, there's a lot in here that um, can inform process and inform just sort of a, maybe even a change of mindset in the ED. So having lived through this and built this, helped build this article out and experiencing the things like you said, in terms of 
not just the adaption of the program or the process, but to see how it can, you know, how the world changed, you know, under your feet while you were working on this. Uh, what are some things that, you know, um, a member picking up or any emergency nurse picking up this this issue of, of the journal and reading this article? What, what are some, for you, Amy, what are some things that you hope that, uh, you know, they can take away from this and, and take back to their EDs? Yeah, I think, I think what I would tell people is ask yourself, what are the tools that we have, you know, in our current situation and our current process that we could use to create more consistency for our teams? Because anytime you have that consistency, you're going to be successful or you're going to be more likely to be successful. So I think that's the first thing that I would say. And for us, it was utilizing our EMR. Um, because we knew that that was something that every nurse touches, every, you know, greeter nurse, triage nurse, primary nurse, um, registration staff. So we knew that that was just a, a great tool. Um, we also used an algorithm that we made available to everyone through our hospital system, through our intranet. And that was another really reliable tool where we could communicate a complicated process, but break it down by steps to make it consistent. Um, and then I think, you know, Encouraging people to use um, to use you know the their emergency preparedness um, uh, strategies that they currently have. So for us, after every time we had a patient that we isolated, whether we thought that they were MERS or we thought that they were Ebola, um, we took the time to use our after action report templates that you would in emergency preparedness. And as a group in different stakeholders, whether it be the public health lab or um, it be our radiology team or our nursing team or our physician team, we took the time to look at our infection preventionists as well and say, hey, where are there gaps in the process? Where did things not work right? You know, maybe where did we have um, um, compliance issues where we just didn't follow the process that we had laid out? And that allowed us to consistently um, evolve and improve our process. So I think that's what I would tell people is wh what kind of tools do you already have at your hands that you can use? How can you strategize on better implementing your processes? Um, and, and I think that applies to all sorts of things, not just this particular topic, but emergency departments in general, like how can you, how can you consistently use those tools? Uh, Suzanne, one of the things I asked Amy early on was, you know, after being a, a reader of the journal for years and years, you know, would you have ever expected, you know, to pursue, you know, uh, a call for papers and, and actually be published? Um, you know, in your, from, from your side of that, uh, you know, what does it mean to, to have gone through that journey? Um, what do you take away from the journey to get to being published here uh, in the premier journal for emergency nurses? Um, you know, to help people, you know, listeners, especially emergency nurses go, maybe this is attainable, maybe there is something of value that I can put together and go through that process. But how does, how did it all come together in your mind that uh, it's important, we can do it, we've gone through it, what, what do you take away from it and, and would want to share with listeners about that whole process? Well, I would say throughout my career, that has never been something that I thought I would ever do. And I will tell you, um, I've had some great mentors in my life that um, have, I guess, taught me that what, what we learn, we should share. And that all of us are learning constantly. And sometimes we think what we're doing, everybody else, is, everybody else already knows. But in reality, we almost have a responsibility to maybe try to share our knowledge and our experiences with our peers. Um, around the country because maybe somebody hasn't been thinking about it this way and we can actually help them out. And so I guess that was kind of what helped me 
think, okay, guess, I guess we do have something we could share that others would want to know about. And at the end of the day, for both of you, it's got to be a little cool just to see your names in the journal as it's floating around now. And it's, it's gotten out there, not just because the information is like, wow, but my name is attached to it. I mean, just from a, a purely selfish standpoint, I'm sure you're both a little bit excited about that. Absolutely. <laughs> Although I think that this is Suzanne's third. Maybe. It is, but, but it doesn't. Yeah, <laughs> but that doesn't matter. Suzanne, Suzanne, Suzanne is certainly experienced in this, although this is definitely my first. So, yeah. So but it's, it's not something that you really. I don't think a lot of nurses probably set out to publish journal articles because we're just kind of used to sharing with each other. But in reality, to be able to do that with others around the country is, you know, it's 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 actually a privilege and it is kind of cool to see your name in a journal article and you think, oh, wow, somebody might really want to read this about what we learned. Yeah, and it, and it is quite fulfilling to know that, that we're, that the, you know, the things that we have worked through that we're contributing to that body of knowledge that's just going to further the practice of emergency nursing in general. So what, what I want people to take away from this, uh, you know, from this interview is two things. One, um, from what you, you've both brought up, uh, being able to be published, it is attainable. You're surrounded by plenty of things that, um, you know, in the ED environment that um, with the right time and thought and planning could turn into something published that does have that greater value and reaches out to mercy nurses across the board, not just within your small circle or your community itself, but also that there is a lot of good clinical uh, takeaways from what you have experienced and what you've learned and evolved over the last five years. So with that, I'll, I'll each throw to you one more time. Uh, I'll start with Suzanne. Uh, any final things you want to add about uh, this experience, the journey to getting this uh, to this thing, to getting this thing published and, and or about the, the actual information, the clinical side of things that you hope people will pick up the, the journal and they'll dig right in and, and flip to, to this because it's so relevant right now. I, I think that is probably the biggest thing is if people would take a look at it just because there's information here that might help you create a safer environment um, for your patients and for your staff. And I mean, I tell people that um, my, my two, I guess, greatest or most important jobs that I have as a, a manager or a leader is to protect our patients and our staff. And I think by following the strategies and the, these article, this article, that, that, that would be accomplished because if you follow what we did, I would, I would be pretty certain you would have the same results that you would see less um, incidences of exposure for your um, staff and other patients, so. Amy, final word from you on uh, you know the journey, the topic, the clinical takeaways. Anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, you know, um, I absolutely second everything that Suzanne said. It's been a fantastic experience for us, but I think you know at the end of the day, um, what what is you know so rewarding to me is um, the same. As a nursing leader, I really want to prepare my team to be successful every single day and keep them safe. And I think that was something like as we um, kind of embarked upon this COVID-19 journey early on, we were really worried about how are we going to consistently keep our team safe, considering all of the um, challenges that we were facing. And, um, and we have, you know, I mean, gosh, I, I just 
feel like to Suzanne's point, implementing this along with other protocols and things like that, we have been very successful. Suzanne Watson, Amy Mead, uh, two of the authors of Catch, Can You Catch It? Lessons Learned and Modification of ED Triage Symptom and Travel Screening Strategy, which you can find in the November uh, issue of the Journal of Emergency Nursing. Thank you so much for both being a part of the ENA podcast today. Thank you. So that'll do it for this episode of the podcast. And I do encourage you to pick up the November issue of Jen, uh, because this article that we just talked about here is just one of many, many, many important things, informative pieces uh, that are out there that are of value to uh, ENA members and any emergency nurse who is out there uh, looking to continue to grow uh, their knowledge base. And as we talked about during uh, you know, the, the episode today, uh, also that there's plenty of you know, positive takeaways uh, that you can bring back to your ED to spur some conversation and even spur some change uh, in, in process and procedure uh, for a variety of you know, uh, different things that are going on. But certainly when we talk about uh, travel screening and how that relates to, to things uh, you know, like communicable diseases and common illnesses and how that spread can happen. So with that, uh, again, a thank you to Suzanne and, and Amy for being a part of it. And we look forward to you joining us next time on the ENA podcast.